Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, I want to let you know that this episode is about a range of near-death experiences and includes a discussion of a suicide attempt. You'd like to think you get some kind of enlightenment out of it, but not really. Not for me, anyway. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Harry's gone bye-bye. Harry's gone to the big bye-bye. He's got his name in the papers on the backside. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. God, you guys really are dead. And need to talk about more. I'm not afraid of death. I'm Anna Sale. Six years ago, when Paul Cook was 44, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. He went through chemo, and his cancer went into remission. Then it came back. I thought I was going to die. And I've thought about it every day since. This time, it was in his lungs. Paul went through chemo again. He had surgery to remove the tumors in his lungs. That was four years ago. And since then, his scans have been clean. You asked if it changes you. And for me, it it definitely did. Uh, And not always for the better. Uh, I'd say for me, it's made me a little more impatient. Every moment has to matter. Uh, but then it doesn't. I asked you to tell me about when you almost died. The car hit me. I was run over by an 18-mile truck. I came very close to slipping 9,000 feet. At that very instant, I saw a handgun pointed at me. You would think that the prospect of dying in that way would be terrifying. It was like I had visited the most beautiful place. And I truly believe I felt the feeling of what it is to die. For a lot of you, these near-death experiences have had a profound impact on the way you see the world, on your bodies, and on your relationships. Now, all these years later, I really see what it became, which was kind of a defining moment in my marriage more than, than anything else. Ellen is 67 years old. She lives in Rochester, New York. Her near-death experience happened almost 30 years ago. She was flying with her husband, David, in a small, chartered plane. Their two children were at home. I said to my husband, the plane sounds funny. And he kind of shook his head and frowned and said, you always think the plane sounds funny because I was a really nervous flyer. And uh, then I noticed he must have heard something because he started staring into the cockpit and he said to the pilot, can you see the airport? And the pilot said, we're not going to make it to the airport. What did you think about? The thing I kept thinking and saying was, who's going to take care of my babies? Those were my words over and over. I probably said it four times. You said it out loud? Yeah. I just couldn't imagine what was going to happen to our kids. The plane went down in a field. The bottom was ripped out by the impact. But everyone on board survived. Ellen walked away with only a run in her stocking. They found out later that the pilot had failed to refuel. They just ran out of gas. I was kind of in la-la land, and the next morning I remember waking up and feeling like 
oh, look at this beautiful sunny day. And it was the end of May. It was gorgeous. And, uh, you know, my kids practically had halos over their heads. I was so glad to see them. And I was grateful for everything, including my marriage. And, and you know, we were high school sweethearts. We'd been together a long, long time. I know that there were problems in the marriage, but uh, I think I was a little bit in denial about how unhappy my husband was. In what way? Well, my husband told me later that that day, that next morning when he woke up was a new day for him, and he knew he wanted to be happier than he was. So our marriage was really over by the end of that year. So you had this overwhelming wave of gratefulness, and your husband was having the opposite emotional response. Exactly. If you could go back and have that pilot refuel the plane before you took off, would you do that? No. No, I'm, I'm glad it all happened the way it happened, and I'm, I'm glad I'm where I am. David would have left anyway at, at some point, and, you know, it, it happened exactly the way it needed to. I survived. Ellen remarried a few years after the crash. She and her second husband will celebrate 25 years together this fall. The chances of dying in a plane crash are incredibly slim. According to the National Safety Council, you're almost 900 times more likely to die in a car accident. I was making a left turn um, and turned in front of another vehicle. My car went off the road, drove through two of those concrete dividers. Flipped the car on its side, um, knocked me unconscious. Slammed into a parked van in a parking lot. Um, No one was in it. Both Kelsey and Jeff were in car accidents when they were 23 years old. Kelsey careened off the road as she was driving alone in the middle of the night in Texas. She's 26 now. When did you realize that you could have died? That's hard because for about I don't know, almost a year after my accident, I wished that I had because it was just so much work. When did you learn that you were paralyzed? I couldn't talk for like months after my accident um, because I had a tracheostomy. So I couldn't ask the question, but I knew because nothing was working. I didn't really know that it was going to be that way forever, I guess. Kelsey eventually regained the use of her upper body, but is still paralyzed from her chest down. She says she has no memory of the accident, or even the days leading up to it. But Jeff, whose car crash happened more than a decade ago, had vivid memories from that day. He was on a road trip with two friends. The friend in the passenger seat, um, he he died instantly. When I became conscious uh, again, he was on top of me, and I knew right away that that he was dead. So, you know, imagine going from great time having fun to opening your eyes and you're in pain, there's smoke in the car, it's on its side. It's just such a strange, I mean, like, the past is just so close that you, you, you feel like if, if you just do the right thing, you can be back there. You can undo it. 
Yeah. Both Jeff and Kelsey's near-death experiences dramatically changed their lives. Kelsey lives at home now with her parents, and she uses a wheelchair to get around. But at the time of her accident, Kelsey was living on her own, working hard and partying hard. I was a pretty huge alcoholic, but I had quit a few months before my accident. And then, according to notes in my phone about a week before my accident, fallen off the wagon and gone a little crazy. Do you drink now? I don't because uh, when sobriety is kind of forced on you by a hospital, you start to think, well, why would I want to mess up that scorecard? But really the biggest reason why I don't drink now is because I want to so bad. I want a Jack and Coke more than anything. Really, I know exactly what it tastes like. And I, it's like, because I want those things so bad, I know that I shouldn't do it. Jeff's car accident also left him with serious injuries and with criminal charges. But worse than that was the guilt. I did something stupid. It was my fault. I felt like, you know, I killed my friend. I felt as horrible as a person can feel. But one of the, the probably the most important things that happened during that time was um, a doctor from another department came down to see me, and she took time out of her day to tell me that when she was younger, she had actually killed three of her friends in a car accident. Mm. Um, and that was such a powerful thing to me because I thought my life is over. I thought, you know, I'm never going to recover from this. And um, that message meant so much to me that, hey, you know, just you didn't do it on purpose. You know, it, it'll work out okay. How did you change after having this car accident? I, I changed in a lot of ways. Um, what changed me the most, I think, was how kindly people treated me. But before the car accident, I, I think a lot of the, my worldview was, was based on fear. Um, you know, I remember being, looking forward to the Iraq war, you know, as, as terrible as that is to say, you know, being excited about us, you know, bombing people and destroying a country. Um, and, you know, I remember the old me was, was very, you know, anti-gay and anti-gay marriage. Um, and I just learned that, that life is, is precious and there's no need to, to hate. To this day, I think my, my parents would, would, would blame that change on the head injury. But <laughs> So your parents' politics did not change. Right? Correct. They did not change, no. I'm definitely the, the black sheep of the family. I thought I had time to cross the street, but a car came over this little hill and I just, I didn't have the visibility that I thought I did. This voice memo came in from a listener named Beth. A few years ago, she was hit by a car in San Francisco while trying to cross against the light. When I came to again, there was a man kneeling next to me and he was just saying, help is on the way, help is on the way. I don't know how long I was out, but waking up from it was the most incredible experience. I was 
completely blissful. I felt no pain. I felt this sense of complete unity. And I just kept saying, oh, we're never alone. We're never alone. It was like I had been reminded of something I had forgotten. A listener named Abby had the opposite experience. I felt the big, gaping meaninglessness of life so much more acutely. Abby sent in this voice memo about when she was in a car accident. She walked away without a scratch, but... The experience gave me the feeling that death was just breathing down my neck every minute of every day. And standing behind every other person I knew who was alive. I, you know, I'd look around at my friends and family and just be like, bye. (laughs) I could just, it was almost like I could see a cloaked figure of death just reaching its bony hand out to grab anybody it wanted at any moment. And it made me really depressed. Coming up, more of your stories about how getting up close and personal with death has impacted your life. Cancer patients make very, very bad boyfriends. They, they don't ask you how you are. They don't. They have no, no room for your feelings in the experience at all. And that was really hard because that made me feel like um, just very alone. You've been sending in your stories about the hardest conversations you've ever had. And we want you to keep sending them in for a project we're working on. If you have had a really difficult conversation about anything with anyone, we want to hear about it. And if you've been meaning to have a hard conversation, but you haven't had it yet for whatever reason, we'd like to hear about that, too. Send in a voice memo or an email to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. I do want to share a little bit of one voice memo that's come in so far from Dr. Matt Harris in Utah. He's an oculoplastic surgeon, meaning he operates on faces and eyes, including eye removal. I don't know, once or twice a month, I have to take someone's eyeball out. And we have a difficult conversation a lot of times around that prospect, which is what's it going to be like to have your eye taken out and how's life going to be when you have no eye on one side or sometimes both. They have a lot of misconceptions about what life is going to be like without an eyeball. Just an interesting uh, thing that I think a lot of people don't realize happens in the background. Um, if you see someone with a glass eye, you know, at some point that eye was removed by somebody and they had to have that conversation. Send in a story about your hardest conversation to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode, it is my turn to talk about hard conversations. I share some of the hardest conversations I've ever had here on Death, Sex, and Money during the seven-year history of the show. I'm starting to pit out. I'm beginning to pit out. Just the, you know, what's been so fascinating for me, that, you know, that you have made the point that I have made money in my life, which I have. Isn't it interesting I had to come back and tell you that I also lost a lot of money in my life? As if, I, as if I'm apologizing for it. It's funny, you've made me feel quite defensive. 
I, I'm, I, I'm sorry. That's okay. I, I think that's what, I think we're hitting on what's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that I feel unladylike. I just, it is interesting how awkward it is to talk about it, even though I talk about it in the abstract every day. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When I asked you to tell me about your near-death experiences, some of you shared stories that weren't about your own brushes with death. When I say near-death, I don't mean that I myself was close to dying. I mean it in terms of proximity. When I was 17, my uh, best friend died. He hadn't worn his helmet. I just watched her crumple underneath the trailer. I have the distinct honor, I guess, of holding his hand at the moment that he died. That's my near-death experience, as in being near my sister's death. And even though you didn't almost die, the experience of being so close to death changed you. Rachel is 22. That's not her real name. Two years ago, when she was 20 and still in college, her boyfriend was diagnosed with lymphoma. I remember lying in bed one night with him and I said something like, don't leave me. And he said, I'm not going to die. That was the only time I can remember us talking about death. But Rachel was scared her boyfriend was going to die. He'd had cancer before she knew him. It had come back. When he was diagnosed the second time, they'd only been dating for about six months. It was like I had to kind of use the memories that we had made in that short period of time to get me through the darkness and, like, the just relentless treatment. And it, it, was, it got really hard. What were the things you missed when he was sick? I couldn't touch him for a long period of time. Um, before you go into the room, you have to wash your hands, put on a mask, a gown, and gloves. Um, you can't touch him at all. I would go, I would get like a manicure or something, and I would feel so amazing because I hadn't been touched in so long. Yeah. And he's so, he's not himself. He's like in pain and discomfort and very, very closed off emotionally too, so he wasn't really talking about anything that was going on. And I remember like a lot of people different reached out to me specifically and said, we know this must be hard for you, too. And what I couldn't say was, his happiness, I feel so terrible saying this, his happiness is not the most important thing to me. I want to be happy, too. And I'm not. Did you want to break up? No, I didn't want to break up. I definitely thought, why am I still here? And is it worth it? I definitely had the thought of, is, is it worth this much? Which is not what you think. Going in, when you get the call that your boyfriend has cancer, you go into survival mode and you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes. But he didn't miss me the way that I missed our closeness because he was so preoccupied with the disease taking over him and that really, really hurt me. 
Do you think in some ways he was pulling away from you because he thought he might die? I mean, that would make sense to me. Um, why someone would just sort of remove themselves from the situation and not be present in a relationship that they thought might end. But their relationship didn't end. The treatment worked. Rachel's boyfriend survived. Once he got out, he was ready to start his life again. And what he missed was golfing, was being with his friends. And what I missed was him. I thought that I had earned him back at that point, that I had stuck out the hardest part so that we could continue our relationship. And it was like, no, not yet. He wants to go golfing. I want to go golf. (laughs) Exactly. Does he know now how you felt when he was at his sickest? We had some conversations about it, but I've never said to him what I've just said really outlined what it felt like. You never said this to him? No. Talking about it doesn't change it. This listener from North Carolina felt the same kind of relationship strain from the other side. Just a few weeks before she was set to graduate from college, she fell 30 feet off of a climbing wall. She broke her back, hip, pelvis, and femur. She had a concussion. And I got a boyfriend out of it. When I was in the ICU, this tall, handsome, ponytailed co-worker of mine showed up to visit, and he just kind of never left. Many parts of our story and our relationship are capital R Nicholas Sparks romantic. But being in a new relationship with one of the people has become suddenly disabled at a young age is tough. Him being the knight in shining armor and me being the broken one. And it's been hard letting someone help me through this whole process when they're so physically whole and it can be really tough to explain it to them. Sometimes you just don't want to talk about it. It's hard to explain that to him sometimes. For Bex Montz, who lives in San Francisco, his brush with death happened after he'd made some big changes in his life, ones that he thought would make him happier. I had been sober for a couple of months and sort of all the other freshly sober people that I knew were feeling, like, a lot better. And I was just miserable. Like, I was thinking about throwing myself in front of a bus. Bex is trans and had recently gotten top surgery. I felt really good about that, but I also still hated myself. So it sort of, like, turns out that when you transition... Beforehand, you hate yourself and you're in somebody else's body. And then afterwards, you hate yourself, but you hate yourself in your own body, which is, you know, good and bad. And yeah, I guess I was expecting, I guess I was expecting for things to be a little bit better. And what's your near-death story, Bex? I was really, really suicidal And I decided that I would, you know, take all my sleeping medication and all my SSRIs and slit my wrist. And 
sit back, relax, and slip into oblivion. So I sort of set everything out and just downed it all. My heart was racing, and I started thinking about my mom, and it just felt so shitty to think about my mom finding my body. And when I'm in a really depressed place, I can convince myself that, you know, the world would be better off without me. But in that moment, I wasn't able to actually do that. And that's not what I was expecting. Did you feel like you wanted to live? I didn't really want to live. Like, like I really wanted to go into oblivion. But in that moment, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to go through with it. So I had to keep living. Bex called 911. He lost consciousness in the ambulance and slipped into a coma. But his phone call saved his life. He woke up several hours later with his mom sitting in the corner of his hospital room. Beck says that his suicide attempt was a turning point. He's 22 now and regularly going to therapy. My therapist is really great, um, which is a sentence I never thought I would say um, because I've had a hard time with therapists in the past. Um, he can, like, tell me that I'm being a brat if I'm being a brat, um, which is something that is also helpful for me. Uh, <laughs> Because, I mean, I mean, I'm a 20-something-year-old. Like, I'm not always, I'm not always uh, a grown-ass man. Like, I, I don't, I, I'm not always an adult. Sometimes I need to be told that I'm being a brat. And Beck says now suicide is off the table for him. And that's way harder than having an out. I've always been able to say to myself, well, if things don't work out, I can just kill myself. Um, but now, you know, I'm just kind of trying to push forward and just try to figure out who I want to be in this world. And just for you, from what you've learned from going through what you've gone through, if there's someone who's in that dark place where you were a year and a half ago, what do you want to make sure that, that, that you say? Um, a lot of people say that things, things will get better and I'm not entirely convinced of that, but I think that things always change and they may get worse. That's totally true. Like things may get worse, but if you're in the gutter, just statistically, it's way more likely that things are going to get better. (laughs) It's just a statistical fact. It just is. Have there been days that you wanted to die? Yeah, yep. It's. I've had times where depression's flared up a little bit, um, and I've just gone, there's no point. There's just, what am I even doing? And that feeling passes. Um, and then I think about the things that I do want to experience and will have the opportunity to experience even if I only do have three months to live. 
Elizabeth Kaplis is 32 years old. I talked with her from Canberra, Australia. A listener sent us a link to the blog that Elizabeth writes, called Sky Between Branches. She has stage 4 colorectal cancer. She was diagnosed two years ago. In an email to us, Elizabeth described her life these days as one big near-death adventure. But the day before we talked, she'd gotten some bad news. I've had actually had a particularly rough couple of days. Um, my, my oncologist called me yesterday and he said, conservatively, I could have three months. Optimistically, I could have 12 months, but the reality lies between those two numbers. So that's kind of just been my last 48 hours is learning to adapt to that. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot all at once. Do you feel different? No, not really. I mean, it's it's hard because I don't feel different. I don't feel that sick. I mean, I felt much sicker before diagnosis than I do now. Um, I certainly don't feel like I imagine I would feel where I were dying. Like, you know, if someone I met said they were terminally ill, I wouldn't expect them to feel or for that matter to look like I do because I feel fine except for a little bit tired. Like, it's it's extremely hard to tell at this point is, am I tired because I'm dying or am I tired because I stayed up too late? Yeah. Am I feeling sick today because I'm dying or am I feeling sick today because I ate half a Toblerone for dinner? Like, <laughs> it, could, it really could be either most of the time. Um, it's really, really difficult to know most of the time and my doctors can't really tell me. When you wake up in the morning, do you feel a certain pressure to achieve things? Yeah, the, the pressure to... I, I kind of jokingly call myself cancer hero because a lot of people through my blog and through my Facebook um, find a lot of what I talk about and my mere existence to be inspirational and it becomes this weird sort of pressure like I need to achieve something real. I need to, I don't know run a marathon like I'm a very lazy person essentially I want to sit at home and it just feels like I'm doing what I do but I have this intense guilt that I'm you know wasting my time I don't really actually know what I would do to classify it as living my life more fully like I'm pretty happy with my existence of faffing around on Facebook have you become less afraid of death um I think so uh, I used to be very, very frightened and kind of almost obsessively so of dying. And it's become a less a less horrifying prospect. And, um, and just the ongoing realisation very, very selfishly that, in fact, once I died, it wouldn't be me suffering. It would be others suffering, which is terrible and upsets me greatly. But... My suffering ends at that point. My part of this will be finished. And the, th the thing that the world will be left behind with is people's memories of me and people's loss and how they then manage it, um, which is not something I'm, I'm responsible for. So there's comfort in the end of your suffering? Strange. Strangely, yeah. I mean, I think a lot. one of my big takeaways from it all is that like, cancer sucks. It obviously is a really terrible and rancid thing to happen to anyone. But in, like, a lot of ways, it's simultaneously been worse and not as bad as I thought it would be. Like, the kind of, the realisation that happens when you realise that you're dying is, like, it's harsh. It's a harsh thing that you deal with every single day. Like, you wake up and 
you know, it's not always the first thing I think about anymore, but it's always in my head. I'm always aware of it. I always will be aware of it. Um, but like, it's, it's, it's not as horrific. I don't know why. I don't know how it's not as horrific as I thought it would be. Um, because it is a natural process. It's not, it's not something alien to being human. It's, it's a very human thing to have happen to you is to die. That is Elizabeth Kaplis. This episode originally came out in 2016, and Elizabeth died on July 12th of that year, a few months after we talked. What you just heard was only a portion of my conversation with Elizabeth. And after her death, we released a longer version of that conversation that is really worth a listen. What a cool woman. You can find a link to listen in the show notes of this episode. Thank you to all of you for sharing your stories of near-death experiences. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Katie Bishop. The rest of the team includes Afi Yellowduke, Yasmin Khan, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Chester Jesus Soria, Hannah McCarthy, Rick Kwan, and Hannes Brown, who wrote the original score for this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, P-I-C-S. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please ask for help. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. As we were putting this episode together back in 2016, we heard from the fiancé of Jeff, the guy who survived the car crash that had killed his friend. She told us that Jeff died unexpectedly in a hiking accident. When he originally sent in his voice memo, Jeff told us how his car accident had changed the way he felt about dying. I don't fear death anymore. I I saw death, and I saw how calm and how peaceful it was, and that it's just not something to be afraid of. I'm Anna Sale. And this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.